Sunrise Highway on the south shore of Long Island in Nassau County looks like most suburban thoroughfares throughout the country. There are several lanes going each way and it's lined for miles with strip mall after strip mall. Going in either direction, you can find clothing stores, bed stores, drug stores, dollar stores, and supermarkets. The traffic into and out of the malls tends to be slow going on the highway. It's not uncommon to see a store for rent, but I often imagine what this road might look like in 20 years, when it won't just be a few stores for rent, but most of these places will have gone out of business. The move to online shopping, all online shopping, but Amazon in particular, has put massive pressure on brick and mortar retailers. From January to June 2017 alone, over 300 retailers filed for bankruptcies. This number is up 31% from the same period in 2016. From October 2016 to April 2017, over 100,000 retail jobs were eliminated. Since 2001, the retail sector has lost about 500,000 jobs, which is a third of its former workforce. There's a fantastic graph circulating on the web that shows the decrease in market capitalization of many of the world's largest retailers over the past 10 years. Sears has lost 96% of its value. JCPenney has lost 86% of its value. Kohl's has lost 64% of its value. Macy's has lost 55% of its value. Even Walmart has lost 1% of its value over the past 10 years. Where did it all go? Amazon. Not literally. But Amazon today is worth more than Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Macy's, Nordstrom, JCPenney, and Sears combined. Most people think Amazon only continues to grow in size from here. It should make sense that the brick and mortar retailers won't be able to compete. Amazon's cost structure is lower because they don't have to pay for rent or the salaries of salespeople. As a result, Amazon can offer more choices in their giant warehouses at a lower cost. Their two-day free delivery is pretty convenient, but as you've probably heard in some cities, they are already offering same-day delivery. They're also working on using drones to deliver whatever you buy within an hour. The future is surely one where online commerce continues to gain at the expense of offline retailers. But how long will it take before there are more store closings and we're left with empty buildings and urban blight to replace the strip malls? Will it be 20 years or 10 years? or just five years. What would you think if I told you that the smart home won't only accelerate the momentum of online commerce overtaking brick and mortar retail, but maybe even be one of the final nails in the coffin of these brick and mortar stores? You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the sixth episode in a series about the future of the smart home and my prediction that in the near future, the smart home will change the way you live. In the last episode, I discussed artificial intelligence in the home and talked to Amazon and Wink about who's going to win the operating system race. In this episode, I'll look at the home as the future hub of many purchases and speak with Walmart and Amazon about their visions for replenishment. Is the reason that Amazon is investing so aggressively in Alexa because they want to sell more products from Amazon.com? Let's take a step back and talk about how people currently buy food and staples for the home, like laundry detergent and deodorant. Most people put together lists of products they need. If the toilet paper is running low, then toilet paper goes on a list. 
The next time you go to CVS or Costco, you pick up toilet paper. Same with milk or butter or laundry detergent. A lot of online players have realized that one way to take market share from both offline and other online players is to offer subscription services for these products. They try to anticipate when someone will run out of toilet paper or laundry detergent and sell the product on intervals. For example, you might purchase an ongoing milk subscription to deliver a gallon once per week. I've long thought that the next evolution buying these products that I'll call staples, a category consisting of food and household items, is for the merchant to know when you are going to need a product. If the home knows when you're getting low on a product, then theoretically, it should be able to replenish that product from an online service. This could translate to a scale in your refrigerator on top of which the milk always sits. When the weight suggests the milk is running low, more milk would be ordered. The sensor for where your toilet paper is stored might tell you that the toilet paper is low. You might imagine a day when your calendar and to-do list are integrated with your replenishment buying. It's mid-November and Thanksgiving is coming up. On your calendar is the dinner that you are hosting and the number of guests you're expecting. The cloud might be familiar with what you've cooked in the past and simply order the ingredients you'll need to cook dinner. In a recent study, the research from Gartner estimated that by 2020, 50% of household consumable products will be auto-replenished by the smart home. Amazon is trying to dominate this category of what I'm calling staples, evidenced by Amazon Prime Pantry. That's the service they offer for free shipping above a certain minimum purchase for bulky items like toilet paper. Amazon Fresh, which is their competitor to grocery delivery services like Fresh Direct, and now their acquisition of Whole Foods. What if Amazon's real agenda for the smart home is to lock in and accelerate their gains in this category? If they control the operating system in the home, the future might be one where the house controlled by Amazon chooses where and when to buy products on Amazon. I asked this question directly to Daniel Rausch, VP of Smart Home at Amazon. How much of Amazon's initiatives around the smart home are because Amazon is at its core, a technology company, and you're building this rich experience for people to control their environment. And how much of it is your mandate, we can sell more products if we're, if we're integrated into the point of desire? How much of your mandate is, is driven by the technology side versus the sell more products? So it's 100% the former being driven by customers, not a technology in, as an end in itself. Uh, but very much solving difficult problems for customers in their home. And, you know, we know that the rest takes care of itself. That's the hardcore customer-obsessed foundation of the way we're proceeding. So the vision is that customers can control the world around them with Alexa. The, you know, specific mission that stems from that vision is taking on hard customer problems, you know, one at a time and building technology that others can innovate on. So you know, I've given you the came home, full hands, dark house, turned on the lights scenario, but you know, there are many things around the home. I can turn to my show and ask to see the ring doorbell camera uh, conveniently in my kitchen as I'm chopping vegetables and understand the comings and goings of my sons who are, uh, it seems to be during the summer, always outside at this age. Um, I can easily control my audiovisual gear now, and it's become a new way for me to engage with content because I don't have the 
can't find the remote control experience. So I think, you know, each of those hard problem sets for customers is the way we organize our approach to developing Alexa. And it has a lot to do with working with um, third parties uh, each and every day as well. I believe Daniel about his mandate within the smart home team at Amazon. But Amazon is such a big company that it's difficult to know whether at the Jeff Bezos level, part of the motivation for the significant commitment to Alexa and the smart home is based on a vision of how products will be sold in the future. At another point in my interview with Daniel, he acknowledged the vision I just articulated for replenishing staples as an opportunity for Amazon. There are certainly interesting things we can do replenishing for customers. We have a set of services uh, here, Dash Replenishment, that let us already do things like printer ink and integrations into smart appliances around your home for things like dishwasher pods and soap and whatnot. And we know that those experiences will continue to grow and sophisticate as well. Um, and uh, we're excited about the possibilities of replenishing things for customers. For those unfamiliar with Dash, this is the $4.99 gadget that Amazon sells you to replace your detergent or diapers with the push of a button. Amazingly, this tiny device has a Wi-Fi chip and a microprocessor. It's configurable by you to have a specific code that correlates to a specific product. On Amazon's website is a video that describes how the Dash button works, in which the voiceover calls it a device perfect for the smart home of the future. From the video, you love technology. You never run out of what you need. Dash buttons are easy to use. Just press it and skip the store. When you press the button on a Dash device tied to detergent, you will get more of that detergent delivered to you. When I first heard about Dash, I thought it was the craziest idea in the world. Who would pay $5 to be able to reorder a single product? I mean, how lazy do you have to be? But when I think about Dash as a way station to a longer-term strategy of having technology in the home replenish what you're missing, I think Amazon's strategy is brilliant, regardless of whether or not that's the mandate of the smart home group within Amazon. After my interview with Daniel, Amazon announced a new product offering called Amazon Key. For $249, Amazon will sell you a package consisting of a camera, a smart lock for your front door, and an application. Amazon Prime members can have packages delivered in zip codes they cover by an Amazon delivery person that will be photographed outside your house and then permission to enter your home. Which brings me to Walmart. If there's one company that should be scared about what Amazon is doing, I think it should be Walmart. That's why I was particularly excited to speak with Keith Menezes in Growth and New Ventures. Keith wanted to make clear before the interview, and I promised to relay it here, that when he spoke to me, he was speaking for himself and not on behalf of Walmart. What is the Growth and New Ventures at Walmart focused on? I'm part of a group um, called Growth and New Ventures. Specifically, my time and my focus is at Sam's Club, which is the membership-based warehouse club uh, division within Walmart Inc. Uh, we've got another group within Walmart called Store 8, uh, which kind of looks after innovation uh, at uh, Walmart stores. Growth and New Ventures uh, is mostly focused on uh, innovation at Sam's Club. And what we think about here are either emerging technologies or new business models that will change the way our members shop with us, uh, whether that's online or at one of our 660 warehouse clubs. And we also think about, are there emerging technologies that we could use to help our uh, associates interact with members, form relationships, and even uh, work a bit more efficiently? 
Well, let's talk about that that concept of ways customers shop with you, new ways customers shop with you. What does that mean? The current way people shop with you is either they physically come to a store or they can shop online. When you say new ways, tell me what that means. I think a lot of our clubs um, uh, or a lot of our, our members, they shop with us by uh, going physically to one of our stores or one of our warehouse clubs. And, um, you know, for them, it's a stock up trip or, um, you know, they actually might go uh, to a warehouse club, uh, you know, as part of a special Saturday treat with their kids where they're trying samples or eating a hot dog and pizza. Uh, you know, they're shopping for stuff for their family. Maybe they're discovering things uh, that we carry that are unique, like a, a you know, like a crazy blender or some jewelry they didn't know we carried. But, you know, in, in the past few years, we've been investing a lot in online. So a lot of our, our, our customers now are looking at us and shopping with us online. One of the things that we've realized recently is consumers are really valuing convenience more than anything. And for us, what that means is we've seen a lot of behavior shift to buying online, but coming to the club to pick it up quickly. So not spending time dwelling in uh, physically in one of our stores uh, because they've got other things that they need to do. So time is really valuable. And and last year, what we did was we we saw something really interesting. We launched a product we called Scan and Go, uh, which let our shoppers basically skip the checkout line entirely by scanning and paying for items on their phone. So time really. Andrew is, uh, you know, increasingly at a at a premium. You know, as we think about our member base, which is, you know, mostly larger families or small business owners that, uh, frankly, are focused on spending more time with their families or running their business. Um, so, you know, we're focused on digital solutions that can serve that need, and we're looking at ways we can continue to remove friction, uh, either by making the shopping experience in the club uh, a bit more seamless, or even looking at ways we can think about serving them where wherever they are. So that's a little bit about how shopping behavior has evolved for us. What does all that have to do with the smart home? So if you think about a shopper, right, you know, over the course of, you know, their weeks and their months or days, shoppers have to make lists and they have to think about what they want to buy. There's a lot of uh, friction inherent in that process, right? So thinking about, oh man, what am I running low of? Um, you know, what do my kids need? I've got a barbecue or a picnic coming up. Uh, you know, what do I really need for that? Um, and so there's a lot of effort and planning and research and writing things down, making lists, uh, mentally remembering things, uh, you know, planning your journey. And, uh, you know, I think the question is, uh, can we take some of the friction out of that? Can we, uh, you know, help people with solutions that tell them, hey, you know, you're running out of this item. Um, you know, is it is it time for you to reorder? Or, uh, you know, if you're, uh, you know, you're taking critical medication, uh, can we make sure that they're never running out and that they're adhering to that um, kind of prescription plan that they're part of? You know, it's it's how can we help them not have to worry about these utility purchases that they need to make, and how can we make that a bit more seamless? So there are solutions that wouldn't require you to be connected to the smart home. Like, for example, with a prescription, if you take it as prescribed, we would know when you're due for a refill. Or, But, but what you're talking about, I think, is how do we put the consumption of these staples on the network? So tell me if I'm, I'm too far ahead of you in the future. So is this, there's a sensor on my toilet paper holder that says you're running low on toilet paper? 
my caveat here is the views expressed here are my own and not necessarily the broader company. But when we say connected home, uh, I think the current thinking right now is all about these very connected ecosystems around, you know, Google or Alexa that are kind of connecting uh, cameras and thermostats and coffee makers and all of those things. Uh, and I, I certainly think that, that you know, there, there's a lot of value there, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, there were opportunities to embed sensors in other things um, that really add uh, a lot of value for consumers, right? Um, so, uh, you know, thinking about uh, being able to replenish something before someone runs out of it or just in time, just as someone is running out of it, right? Uh, being able to remind someone uh, with really high accuracy that they're running out of or that they need to take a prescription. I, I think there's a lot of value there. The way you think about it is not how does Walmart get into the software business or how does Walmart get into the sensor business? Your, thing, your mandate is how do we sell more product? In terms of a Sam's Club model, I don't know if it's about how do we sell more product. I think of that as an outcome. For me, it's how do I build a relationship with a member? And how do I do that is I have to figure out what's valuable to a member. And if I think through what that means, it means our members have a lot of friction um, coming up or remembering what they're buying or knowing what they need to buy for upcoming events that they're planning. Everyone has that friction, right? That's not unique to your customers. Just this idea of maintaining lists and knowing what you need to know. Yes, but it's, it's important for us because we are a membership-based model. That, that's my only point there. And so, so if, if we can demonstrate value by offering convenience and knowing about what a member needs before they need it, then they're realizing value in their membership beyond the products that they're buying. Let's drill down on that use case of prescription pills. I order prescription pills for XYZ prescription that is good for 30 days. So what does it look like where my pills are that's connected to the network? How does that work? I'm having difficulty even imagining that. Is that a scale? I, I, I don't know that it's a scale, right? So again, in, in our imagination, I think what it has to be is, Andrew, the form factor has to be around what consumers are currently used to, right? So if you're asking them to put a scale and then place the pills on a scale, in my mind, it's just not going to work. However, if you are able to give a standard, uh, I don't know, orange prescription bottle that has uh, like sensors embedded in the cap almost to where they're imperceptible, right? And they've got either Wi-Fi or cell radios built in, or they've got kind of depth or imaging sensors built in into the cap where they can detect, um, you know, with some level of accuracy, uh, like how many pills you've taken and when. But how many pills I've taken or just how many times I've opened up the, the bottle? Potentially both, right? Because uh, you, you could have uh, an accelerometer that kind of reads when you've picked up the bottle. You could have another sensor that detects when the bottle's actually opened. And then when you close the cap, you could have some other sensor uh, that detects the stock or, or, you know, with some accuracy, the level of what's in the bottle. Is that something Walmart or any company you've heard of is specifically working on? Not that I'm aware of yet. I mean, again, just using my imagination, like this, this is what I'd, I'd love to think about and what I'd love to explore. But um, yeah, no, no one that I know of is really exploring this in too much detail. One thing that would be, would be really interesting, I mean, if, I'm thinking if I had your job, one, one thing that would be fun is I would share all my imaginary visions with the hope that some startup, instead of Walmart having to have a lab and start experimenting with these things, I would just sort of put it out there to the world and say, if you're a startup and you build a prescription bottle, well, I'm a consumer. 
And I would think if you if you did that, and we just went through use case after use case, your Walmart, you'd get a lot of interest. Is that part of? Yeah, that's part of it. That's totally part of it. Why wouldn't you publish? Why wouldn't you put on your website products Walmart would buy if you entrepreneurs went out and built? We've got to test our way into solutions, right? Um, we don't know for certainty that things are going to work. Um, they certainly work in our imagination, but we've got to lean into POCs. We've got to see how customers or how our members are really going to deal with that. Uh, we've got to think through privacy implications. Walmart has a venture arm called Store Number 8 that has a focus on e-commerce. I asked if Keith's group at Sam's Club was also making venture investments. We don't yet. No, we, we don't yet. Um, but what we do, what we have done is we we generally look to talk to different startups um, as part of what we're looking at. We also look at working on POCs on our own. It's just another model. We, we don't look to startups for everything and we don't do everything internally. Tell us some other use cases. I like the example of the prescription drugs. Give me another example of seamless replenishment and then walk me through what the imaginary implementation looks like. So an, another use case could be, um, you know, uh, again, around replenishment. We, we have a, a lot of our customer base, uh, as I mentioned, uh, are also small businesses. So they could be like uh, an office administrator who's often buying supplies for their office, whether that's paper or ink and toner. Um, so, you know, are there solutions that we can offer businesses where, you know, those office administrators aren't spending time? Uh, reordering things, and those things kind of happen in the background. So uh, think about ink and toner as inks running out. It's automatically replenished and a shipment's on their way. Uh, you know, another use case could be if I'm a, a restaurant and I typically buy things like plates or oil or large quantities of uh, kind of consumable goods um, for my uh, for my restaurant, you know, as you're running out, can we replenish that? And then potentially, like, as we get new ingredients or as we expand our assortment, can we suggest what other ingredients you might need? Or can we even provide you with content uh, around things that you're buying so that you can try out different recipes? So that's that's kind of that entire loop I'm thinking about. So how does it work in the future? Let's assume we, we fast forward, these devices exist, right? It seems like making that pill jar, the first one would be phenomenally expensive. But how does this work in the future? Are these devices, the ink toner, uh, paper, do they need to be proprietary devices so they're sending the replenishment direct to Sam's Club? Or does it create a challenge for you because, because it's going to be open and people will say, okay, now I can just price shop for every single product. And so there's no competitive advantage to Walmart, you know, getting involved in making these devices. So your question is like, you know, ultimately, does that become a commodity? And, you know, can, other, can you just latch on other, other services, other fulfillment uh, companies? I think that's an interesting question. Um, and, you know, I haven't fully thought through that. But as I'm thinking about it, as you're mentioning it, I, I think there are a couple of things. One is it's not just about providing data to us about like kind of replenishment models and also uh, whether we need to replenish something for one of our members. Um, but I also think suppliers are interested in that data. They're interested in um, understanding are people using that product versus using one of one of their competitors product. So I think about that a little bit um, in terms of whether it'll be open or not. Uh, I don't know, Andrew. Just kind of playing this out, if I'm giving someone a prescription bottle with sensors in it that are connected to our network, um, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where a consumer or another party um, is able to hook into that sensor um, and connect them to their backend ordering systems 
um, to gain that insight. That, it seems like a lot of friction, either for a consumer or a company. I think you have to get somebody to attach to a new product. I'm, I'm struggling to see how individual products could suddenly become open because I, I think you would need to get somebody to attach to a new product. You'd have an agnostic third party that was distributing hardware published to some protocol. Potentially. Yeah, you're right. That's the other way. You're, you're, you're completely right, which is someone we work with could decide to open up their protocol to other vendors. Totally. I don't know that we would structure an agreement that way, though, where if, if one of our vendors uh, kind of supplied these components and said that the protocol was open and they could kind of switch that pipe from us to one of our competitors, um, I, I don't know that we'd structure an agreement that way. Well, this is the part that intrigues me about the entire smart home because we we had a this stretch of time where there was you know more startups in this space you know every day new startups uh, either building hardware solutions or software solutions and and you wonder where the most defensible part of the ecosystem is and I think about the ongoing uh, battle between Walmart and Amazon and it seems like the one place where you would not want to seed ground is in the operating system for the home. Because if you control the operating system for the home, you have the opportunity to write the rules. I wonder whether if the highest value in the home is in the operating system, the Google Home, the Apple HomeKit, uh, Wink, why isn't Walmart playing there? Why is that not critical? You're, you're going toe for toe with Amazon in, in just about every other e-commerce area, why seed ground and not compete on the operating system of the home? Okay, so so I, I can't comment on um, on that kind of stuff. But what what I can say uh, a bit more generally is that um, I, you know I, I don't know that playing on a Google Home or an Echo or a HomeKit or like a HomePod really makes sense in uh, in some ways. I mean, I think a lot of these devices, when you look at what people are actually using them for, um, it's really to set timers and play music, right? Like discovering additional skills or additional things that you can do uh, with a home type form factor um, or an echo type form factor is really difficult. What, what I like to think about is are there other form factors that we can use um, that could solve problems we're looking to solve, right? And we have to be really clear about what those are. Um, voice makes sense, I think, for very discreet actions, very discreet things that you're trying to do. Uh, but if you're trying to browse or figure out what to buy, you probably don't want to do that over voice necessarily. But why, why, why are we focused on the form factor? It, it seems like it's the operating system, whatever the form factor is, whether it's voice or whether it's a, a application. The future is one where every device is integrated with one another and we get to a place where you know, not just I'm looking to replenish um, my prescriptions and milk and and other food from Walmart, but I'm getting to a place where I'm on a diet, I'm stressed, I'm, and the home is smart enough to adjust my lighting, adjust the temperature. It's replenishing my food based on my diet. And it, se it seems like the operating system is the Trojan horse that would allow you to leverage an advantage in the cloud space, right? Where the real... The winner in this space is going to is going to control the cloud and the and the intelligent offering in the cloud. I don't think customers are thinking about what what cloud platform or what OS they need to be using. They just want things to work. I could potentially imagine or see a world where 
um, we look at connecting to some of those platforms. I, I guess my counterpoint is I don't think that what you know what we're looking to solve in terms of replenishment or medical adherence or uh, even advising people on diet necessarily needs to be through a connected home platform. For us, you know, in the short term, I think, you know, I like to think about we we've got already like replenishment services that we have. Like, why do we necessarily need to go through a home or an Alexa to make that happen? I, I don't quite see the point of that in the near term. In the case of Sam's Club, you've got this wealth of data on all of your of all on all of your customers. These applications that we were talking about, the pill, these things can work in conjunction. You can use your competitive advantage of Sam's Club and the membership for these sensors over time to work in conjunction with the membership base of Sam's Club. Yeah, and yeah, and, and in in complementary ways, I think to other connected home solutions, right? Like, I think there can be value in having sensors and other products to serve, you know, customer needs. Like what, what, what I don't want to do or what, what I want to make sure we're not doing is just playing on like a Google Home to say we're playing on a Google Home when it doesn't actually solve a pain point. We'd certainly get a lot of PR for it. You know, we'd, we'd be on there um, and, and it would be interesting, but it, you know, like the, the use cases might be limited, right? It could just be adding stuff to a list, which is valuable, potentially reordering something, which is valuable, uh, but it may not solve other things such as, uh, you know, uh, knowing with certainty when someone's running out. It, it won't solve the kind of passive and not having to do anything um, in order to, to serve the customer. It won't be in the background. It'll be much more active and require the, the consumer to do something, which I still think is a bit of friction. I mean, how do these staples just literally, or even something in your refrigerator, that gets replenished by Walmart. Can you can you walk us through just a hypothetical of how those would work? Yeah, and, and there are no solutions that I've found. So, like, if anyone's listening has or is working on a solution for something like this, I'd I'd love to chat some more. Right now, there there are I think uh, a few OEM solutions that I've seen that I I can't recall the names of that have a kind of sensor or mat base like sensor mats, which basically uh, you can set a sensor mat down, you can set uh, something on top of that, and you can take an initial read on the weight and kind of decrement. Uh, weight against the the product that you have over time and and you know make an assumption about usage and then you know when the product doesn't weigh anything uh, you, or is close to not weighing anything then you can basically reorder so a lot of our uh, consumers are uh, convenience store owners right um, and these convenience store owners they they own mom and pop convenience stores um, and typically you know these guys don't have uh, a back office computer they're managing things on their phone they're typically um, trying to make sure they, they don't have an inventory system in place um, so you know how I'm thinking about this use case is you know what if we found a way to uh, you know create or have a mat they could put on their shelf and put packs of candy bars or like uh, you know six packs of drinks or beer and so as items are pulled uh, you know we can update and decrement their inventory accordingly um, and then kind of show them a list of what they're running out of or better yet just reorder for them and have items ready for them to either pick up or deliver right to them so that that's one use case I'm thinking about that's pretty cool. And would you and you could eventually based on one your supplies or changes in your cost, you might even include a display and dynamically change their pricing of a diminishing product. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So like, so imagine like if we had um, some sort of e-ink uh, kind of display or an LCD. So Kroger uh, up in Cincinnati, they've they've kind of tested digital signs that kind of update, uh, you know, kind of pricing based on, you know, new product that's coming in or if, uh, you know, items are close to expiration or, or need to be turned soon, they can they can update pricing when they also have like indicators of freshness. So, you know, thinking about things like that um, are, are intriguing. And the the other use case, I guess, let me, let me put near your ear is, um, you know, a lot of our customers are like, uh, again, small businesses that restock break rooms or, uh, restock janitorial supplies. So, you know, as people are using paper towels from like a dispenser, for instance, uh, can we identify, you know, what that usage is like and when they're running low and if we need to make a replenishment decision? So is that the progression of new technologies into the home will work? We'll see them introduced into small businesses first. Based on their adoption, the price will come down and then we'll see them in the home? I think it's going to have to be a bit of parallel discovery, uh, frankly. I think from what I've seen, the way the sensors are kind of designed right now or the way they work, um, I think it's a bit more effective um, to try uh, to try embedding them in uh, sort of bulkier housings, bulkier products, so things that are more suited for a business. I think in the home, you really have to think about form factors because it's hard to get people to change behavior and use a completely like new way of putting their pills on something like a sensor mat or using a completely standalone special bottle to measure what you're using. Like someone has to physically do some work to make that happen. Um, I think where the stuff really effective is if you can embed it in the current packaging and it frankly doesn't look any different than a product you would normally buy. Um, it's just a, a bit smarter than what you normally buy. So that, that's the way I think about it. So does Walmart have a lab that's working on these things or you're principally waiting for outside vendors to develop? At, at Sam's Club, we don't, we don't have like a physical lab where we're like tinkering on stuff, um, you know, but certainly we have um, engineers uh, here at SAMS that are thinking about these types of solutions and we're thinking about launching uh, different POCs. I, I can't comment on what those are, but where I'm sitting, which is out in California, we don't have uh, like a physical space or a lab, but we, uh, we have experimental prototypes that we will run from time to time. Does Walmart have separate initiatives where they have a lab? We do, and so so that that's that's the store number eight team, and we also have a team called uh, Walmart Labs, and they're really focused on backend innovation, also consumer facing innovation. So some of the things you'll see publicly are uh, things we're testing in at some of our Walmart stores around automated dispensing. Basically, as you as you walk into a store to pick up an order, um, you don't need to go wait in a line somewhere. You kind of walk up to an automated dispensing solution, kind of punch in your name or or you know scan a code, and then and, and order is automatically retrieved for you. Um, so, you know, they work on those types of solutions and investigating those types of solutions. And, uh, you know, as part of this new store number eight team that uh, Walmart uh, has launched, they're also looking and exploring, uh, you know, your standard emerging technologies and how consumer behavior could shop and are, are just thinking about how to test and experiment with those technologies. If you're successful, what happens to Sam's Clubs? Do the, the stores go away or the stores reconfigured so there's no place to browse and there's just pickup? Are you destroying Sam's Club business? Yeah, yeah, great, great. Yeah, definitely get, get, get me uh, talking about that, right? Um, you know, um, it's interesting, right? There there have been a ton of articles. There's been a ton of press about the death of traditional retail and, you know, a lot of store closures over the past year. 
I, I think what you said as you kicked off this conversation is right. Um, how consumers are shopping is just really changing. And so what that means is we need to serve consumers where they are, which means, yes, we'll need to rethink how our clubs are configured. Um, maybe, you know, as we think about things as, uh, you know, younger generations or even empty nesters are urbanizing um, and they are living in like highly concentrated or even middle tier cities. Um, the question is, do they have enough space for bulk? Right. And so do we need to think about how we can enable just in time deliveries or how we can enable uh, people to consume things as they need it rather than, you know, physically going somewhere uh, to buy a very big package. And, and that's the only model we support. So that, you know, that's something, that, you know, I think about. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I think shopping is evolving in one of two directions. One is people don't want to spend time shopping for things that they need. Um, they almost want that stuff to happen in the background. It, it's a chore to shop for things you consume on a regular basis. You just want that to magically appear for you uh, without you having to do any like little work or any work for it. I think what people are craving are they're craving experiences. And people like to be entertained. People like to experience things. So the question is, um, what experiences can we provide um, for our members um, that make shopping a bit more entertaining, but in a way that makes sense? The goal is not to make shopping more entertaining. What you're selling people is, I'm giving you back your time. If I can intuit what it is you need and deliver it to you periodically based on what I know, I'm selling you back your time, right? Isn't that, that's what you're saying. Not entirely. So, so let me reframe that a bit. When I look at our member base and how they shop, certainly a lot of them value time. A lot of them value savings. A lot of them value efficiency, right? So getting in and out, getting the best price, getting the best product. But a huge portion of our shopping base actually enjoys coming to our clubs and spending time with their kids, kind of shopping around, eating at the cafe, trying out different samples, interacting with associates, discovering merchandise they didn't think we could carry, right? So uh, they kind of like that. They look at that as uh, kind of a Saturday morning treat without needing to spend a ton of money. So the question is, is that what we should be anchoring on um, in terms of our physical space? And uh, for members that care more about value and efficiency, are there other ways we can serve that either through the connected home or uh, by having other digital tools that can let members get in and out of, of our clubs pretty quickly or new pickup points and things like that? Walmart clearly has sharp minds thinking about the smart home. But from Keith's perspective, this is still a niche space. I think the concept of smart homes appeal um, to, uh, right now to a very different uh, set of customers, customers that are pretty tech savvy or customers that are, are interested in, um, you know, kind of hooking up different things that they have uh, within their home because they, they inherently see some benefit. Um, I think what's still a barrier for a lot of people is really understanding what's in it for them. What are they going to get out of a smart home? Um, and, you know, how, how can it really help them in, in their daily lives? And then the second piece, I think, is some of these solutions are really cost prohibitive and complex. They're complicated to set up. People don't really know if they're going to buy something, if it's going to work with the rest of their smart home. You know, some of these price points might be unapproachable. Walmart's vision is likely bigger than what Keith described. In October of 2016, Walmart filed a patent in the area of measuring how products were used within the home 
and then auto-replenishing them as needed. I'm with Keith in that the smart home is niche now, but I think we might have different perspectives about how quickly this will all change and the dramatic consequences of that change. Last year, Amazon generated revenue in excess of $135 billion, while Walmart did over $485 billion. But there's a reason that Amazon is worth almost twice what Walmart is worth. Amazon has had 20 consecutive years of double-digit revenue growth. Last year, Walmart's U.S. revenue grew just 1.4% from the prior year. But Walmart's online revenue grew 69% in the first quarter of 2017 compared to the first quarter of 2016. The bad news for Walmart is that 97% of their total revenue is still from their stores. And the 4,672 stores that for so long have made up one of Walmart's greatest assets are increasingly looking to me like one of their biggest liabilities. I like Keith's perspective on the need to make the buying experience simpler. The problem is that the operating system is likely to be akin to the store itself. Because Amazon controls its own operating system, it seems like a war Walmart can't afford not to fight. If I were Walmart, I'd be thinking about a significant partnership with Google or Apple. And it seems like they're in the process of doing so, as they announced in August 2017 that they partnered with Google to offer voice-activated online ordering using Google Home. Right now, everyone, even the biggest of companies, seem to be playing nice with one another. Everyone claiming that they are mostly agnostic as to whom they will work with. My bet is in the next several years, you'll hear about additional massive alliances that might include a more substantive relationship between Walmart and Google. Tune into the next episode in the series about the future of the smart home, where I'll paint a picture of what the future looks like and explore how future smart homes will develop personas on a home's inhabitants and begin to fulfill their needs even before these people are able to articulate them. If you'd like to learn more about the people featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com and don't forget to subscribe. This is Predicting Our Future.